Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a mm, real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into the one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theathletic, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theathletic to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash theathletic. Would you like to become the headline sponsor of the most authoritative Leeds podcast on the planet? Would you like to be front and centre on the Phil Hay Show alongside Phil and the Square Ball team? Would you like to reach hundreds of thousands of highly engaged Leeds fans every month? Ah, of course you would. But your brand can advertise with us now. Our skilled and charming commercial team are waiting to hear from you. Contact partnerships at theathletic.com. That's partnerships at theathletic.com. The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Welcome to the Phil Hay Show. Brought to you by The Athletic along with The Square Ball. Dan here from The Square Ball along with Michael and Phil Hay from The Athletic. It's the back end of the week show. We've um, we've moved it slightly earlier, Phil, haven't we? Which we're going to get into in due course. We are ahead of the press conference this time. You can read the reaction to the press conference. Phil will be covering that on The Athletic and pre and post game. Uh, either side of Chelsea this weekend. Interact with Phil. Read the match reports. The full shebang is at theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. Use that URL to, to get the uh, the offer that's on at the minute if you want to have a read. Phil, Fulham first, out of the FA Cup. No Wembley this year. What did you make of it? Disappointed, personally. Previous seasons watching Leeds and actually almost back to the dawn of time in this job, the FA Cup's been one of those things that was kind of there to get out of the way. Elimination as soon as possible always seemed to be the routine. And... It was just one of those competitions that happened to other people in the way that, you know, Wembley trips happened to other people. Leeds never made a, a scratch, particularly. And I was chatting a few weeks ago to somebody, a Leeds fan, about 87 and the, the run to the, the semi-final um, against Coventry City, which even if you speak now to people like um, Brendan Ormsby, who, bless him, is, is not in, in great health, but still has that twinkle in his eye and, and remembers that mistake he made on the day, they still feel like they should have won that tie and, and, and should have reached the final. But this fan was talking to me about the way in which that run developed in a really kind of slow and unassuming manner. He he remembers that season, crowds at Ellen Road being fairly modest, to say the least, even though Leeds got to the, the playoff final in the second division. But on the day of the QPR tie, the, the fifth round, everybody was drinking in town and it was what was going around that Ellen Road was filling up and selling out. And there were people who thought that was a joke, you know, thought that others were on the wind-up because Ellen Road just wasn't selling out that season. And then when they got down to the ground, it was, you know, it was it was heaving. And, and suddenly 
there was this buzz and, and this interest in a cup run that had almost not been telegraphed in, in any way. So this fan had, had put a five on Leeds at 40 to 1 after the win over Cardiff. And the rationale for that was that Cardiff was a winnable tie. Okay, they almost made, made a mess of it down in Wales, but they got through. And then it was Accrington in the next round. And after that, as was the case in 87, you're looking for fairly winnable, favourable ties that give you a chance to progress. And I've got to say, Cardiff, Accrington, Fulham away is not asking the earth, really, is it, to get to the quarterfinal? So it felt on Tuesday night like a big opportunity, chance to get into a game which would have had a lot of hype around it and a lot of interest in which inevitably Leeds would have been drawn away from home because they always seem to be and and it did turn out that Fulham will be going to to Manchester United in the next round. But I think in Leeds' defence, they played to win at Fulham. I still think they probably deserved to win at Fulham. I think they had the better of the game. I think they had more of the chances. They were undone by two really, really high quality finishes from Fulham. And yes, you kind of turn back to the bread and butter now and it's 14 games to survive and everything in football these days seems to seems to be about the league. You know, the league league fixtures, league schedule, league status seems to override everything else. But this season more than any other, I'd have taken a bit of the little magic of, of thinking that Wembley might be on the horizon. That said, having gone out of it, I don't sit here really, really ruin not progressing in the cup, which is a shame. It's probably a reflection of the of the importance of the competition overall. I don't know about you. I feel like it can, it can be whatever you want it to be. I was looking at the, the games last night and Southampton in particular thinking, well, they're probably going to go through and, and that's a good thing because that'll distract them away from the league. But then as they were losing, I was thinking, oh, this is a good thing too. Because, yeah. because they'll be so thoroughly demoralised by a, a defeat to Grimsby that it, they can't stay up after losing to Grimsby. It's not possible. So um, I'm happy to spin it whichever way uh, <laughs> my mind needs me to. So I'm saying concentrate on the league. Good. I think the point that was being made about 87 is that a lot of league seasons blend into one, don't they? And a lot of league seasons leave you with no specific memories. A lot of league seasons can be quite underwhelming. Oh, quite I long, I long un- for one of those un- at the moment. For- unsatisfying. But, but this is it, you see. We're all now in, in that mindset of get to me, be safe, move on. I mean, if I think back, it's not the same thing necessarily, but if I think back to the seasons when Hearts have won the Scottish Cup up north, with one exception, 98, because they were actually in the mix for the title that season as well and they finished third, I couldn't really tell you what the league position was. But I absolutely remember the runs to the final and, and the finals themselves and just the, I guess, the, the kind of electricity with which comes with actual achievements and, you know, Somebody tweeted, and I, I think they're right, that league seasons are league seasons and some of them just come and go. A lot of them just come and go unless you're a specific club who who win titles fairly regularly. But trophies are permanent and trophies last and even the, the kind of feel of almost being there is um, is quite tantalising, which I think we saw in what Javi Gracia was saying last week about Watford or earlier this week about Watford. You know, he, he lived it once. He kind of lived, wanted to, to live it again and it's not the end of the world. Like, it doesn't... It doesn't matter to any great degree that, that they haven't gone through but it just felt like something which could have lightened up this season a little bit yeah it was a chance wasn't it it was mm-hmm. a chance just funny going back to 1987 I missed that QPR home game I went to a ninth someone's ninth birthday party at the local swimming pool instead of going to the football <laughs> felt obliged to do so and I still regret it to this day not that I went to the birthday party necessarily but I missed what was a a raucous day inside Alan Rod. I would have liked to see that. I went to the semi-final as well at, at Hillsborough. I think it's one of the great Leeds United photos, don't you think, Combs, be on the yeah. fence? Like, it is. Everybody knows what that is. Even though, I, I mean, Brendan was a really recognisable Leeds player in, in the 80s and a good servant for the club, but not somebody you would have in a list of, you know, all-time top 50 
players or anything like that, but everybody knows who he is and what that is and where it was and, and what was going on. It's a fantastic header as well. It's the most probably one of the most 1980s headers you'll ever see. Yeah. As, as I was saying, sort of half towering, half thundering and did genuinely just about smash the net. The iconic um, home kit as well that so many people love, that, um, yeah. that Umbro kit from the same time, the short shorts as well, yeah. um, giving away the... Uh, the fact that it was the, the 80s. The button sponsor, um, yeah. Well, back to 2023, and um, I felt Leeds were unlucky is probably the right word. I think yeah, I'm, I'm reaching for so. here on, um, I on think Tuesday. So. I suppose the, the thing to do, given that they are out, is to look more broadly at what we're starting to see with Gracia's team. And I guess what we like about it, what we don't... I did like the performance on Tuesday. And, you know, to deal with both of Fulham's goals, the, the first one was a Hollywood hit from long range, which... You know, Tyler Adams sells Mark Rocker's shot. Mark Rocker gets done in the tackle by um, Polinia. Polinia. Just on that, do you think Rocker was a little bit weak in that tackle? I do. I think he should have he, put his he, foot in. He he could have been he could have been firmer in it, but that's not a great pass, is it? You know, no. that's that's inviting trouble. That and you don't think instantly that Polinia is going to get that. He's going to hit it from where he hit it, and he's going to going to bury it. And you know, I saw people as it tends to be the case with goals like that, talking about Millie's positioning. But the the curl and the dip on that shot was ridiculous. So I think in in most positions, it would have been difficult to have stopped that. And then the second goal, I guess, when you watch it back, you can see what Fulham are doing. And it's actually it's actually quite obvious what Fulham are trying to do in, in that position. And I think Leeds will regret the fact that Solomon was, was given the space to shoot. But it's still a, a really, really fine hit and pinpoint dead eye into the corner. That aside, and this applies to the Southampton game as well, the, the thing that's jumped out to me from the the two matches under Gracia so far is how compact and tight Leeds have looked defensively and how little they're giving away in the way of big chances. I mean, none. It was none in either game, wasn't no, it? No, none in these two matches to date, which is a really good sign because if you go through the numbers, Leeds are way up the charts when it comes to the number that, that they've given away over the course of the season and, and up to this point. So it suggests to you that already there's a framework developing that is going to make Leeds tidier at the back more solid at the back. I don't think I don't think they were wildly creative against Southampton, but they did create a lot against Fulham. They did put Fulham under a lot of pressure. And I think by the time you know McKinney's shot hit Bamford and then came back, hit his shin, went wide of the post, you just realised that it wasn't going to be their night, that nothing was going to go in, nothing was going to go for them. We, we got um, to the point here watching it and we, we were laughing. We were just laughing. Like yeah. they, they, we couldn't score if we played all night. Almost, almost like yeah. a yard out, you're thinking yeah. someone's going to find a way to if stick this, this just over the bar. If this doesn't bobble to someone's foot where you can just tap yeah. it in, then we, it's never going to happen tonight. But I guess one of the things that we were critical of under Marsh was the constant refrain of we're playing well and it's coming and we will get better results and, and time went on and that didn't happen and the, the league position worsened. So you have to be careful not to be hypocritical in allowing Crassier that grace, I suppose. But he is only two games into the job and I think that felt to me like the sort of defeat where you could come away and actually be fairly, I guess, constructive about it and without wanting to be positive about the fact that you've lost, I think look at aspects of it and think to yourself that you played well. And I guess more to the point that the ideas of a new coach do seem to be taking hold. I mean, how well it's going to work over the 14 games that are left is essentially going to decide whether Leeds start next season as an EFL club or or in the Premier League. And I think however it goes and, and whether or not it works for Gracia, I think it's going to be exceptionally tight at the bottom. Maybe not quite as tight as last season if Leeds do stay up, but probably not too far off either. But 
I feel like in the circumstances at the moment, given that Leeds are, you know, we're feeling pretty desperate after Goodison Park. I don't think the signs have been bad so far. I think structurally, the whole thing is far more encouraging to me. And it's it's quite hard, isn't it? It's the, the intangibles, trying to point out what it is that's different between now and March. But use of possession, while not still not perfect, is better. And it means you alleviate a bit of pressure on yourself, don't you? If you've actually got the ball, you're not chasing it all the time. They're not getting caught upfield in the way that they were. They're, they're not committing uh, so heavily. And I think this this is probably related in some part to the intensity of the press. You know, they're, they're not pressing with the same intensity and not making themselves easy to play through when it when it doesn't work. There were a couple of occasions w- with Fulham where they, they almost drew blood, Fulham, down the left-hand side. A couple of occasions where Robinson in particular was trying to overlap Solomon and, and get him behind and it, and it almost worked for them. But it was isolated and you didn't feel like that was constantly on. You didn't feel like that was always on the cards and, and was going to bite Leeds at some stage. And it was noticeable as well with McKenney that he was playing the first time we've seen from the start, you know, the midfield three of Rocker, Adams and McKenney, which you kind of feel probably picks itself. McKenney playing in that advanced role in front of the two behind him, but dropping deeper as soon as Leeds lost the ball. So again, just providing a bit of extra cover and... and also, if you look at the, the way that Leeds position themselves, they are asking teams to go around them, but they're not giving teams huge amounts of space to do that. So it's not, you know, it's not simple. It's not easy to 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 get at Leeds or hasn't been um, in in these two games. And some of the passing wasn't perfect or great on Tuesday night from the midfield. But I liked McKinney, particularly in the first half. I liked his movement. I liked the way he was trying to dictate play trying to give you know options for the midfield to pass to trying to drive things out wide and, and down the flanks and without a doubt we've seen so far that width has been used much more under Gracia than it was under under Marsh What did you make of McKenney's disgusting push that led to the disallowed goal? <laughs> I think I've become more annoyed about this Yeah as The more I've thought about it and the more you think back to games where well what did Kane do to the Kane goal where Melier was fouled yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Willie Nonto yeah. being thrown to the ground by Tyrone Mings and you think the level of physical contact in those that was judged not to be a foul versus the in this, it's, there's just not a I mean, lot I mean, of consistency there. And you do there? that thing where you, you cherry pick the examples, oh, don't exactly. you? Yes, of course but, you do. But if, there are, but, if there are things from your season where you can go, well, how much physical contact is too much? And that the push on Wilson is pretty low down the list of, of things you'll see in a penalty box. I, I, was surprised, was, I was surprised that a human could fly so it was, much. Well, it was like a double top dismount um, <laughs> off the beam, wasn't it? I thought, yeah, 6.0. It seemed to me that he... He did get a push in the back. He did get a push in the back, but it seemed to me that he knew he'd had a push in the back and it was important to make sure that the referee realised that had happened, in part because his position wasn't great and McKenney was probably going to get on the off. I don't know if he knew it was McKenney, but whoever it was behind him was going to get on the end of that. And from more from his perspective, it worked then, didn't it? Of course it did, yeah. I, I thought it was really, really soft. I mean, th- these arguments can go around forever because we did a piece last week about, they called it the Athletic, the Dark Arts, but it was really a, a look at which player at your club is very, very good at either winning free kicks that perhaps aren't free kicks or this, that and the other. So I highlighted the ailing flop, which I do think is going to be undefeated forever. You know, it's it's kind of weird that it's been going on for six, seven years and there are still players and managers out there who either haven't worked it out, aren't aware of it, don't know what to do with it, but it works all the time, you know. And the thing I say about ailing is that there's always contact. There is always contact. But I think if you went through them all, you could argue at length about whether it's contact that merits going down in a free kick. So with a lot of VAR decisions, 
your attitude towards them is skewed by club allegiance. That's not a Leeds thing, that's everybody, you know. You, you look at the decisions against you and you think they're harsh because it would be advantageous if they went for you, obviously. And likewise, in, in the opposite extreme as well. I mean, just to, just to pause you for a second there, if that had happened at the other end, I would, would have wanted it given. Yeah, yeah. Of, course you, of, course, of course you would have been. And, and I totally understand that. And everybody's the same because we're, we're all human. The melee decision at Spurs, I think, is by a mile the most mad VAR decision I've seen all season. It still staggers me that that was given mm. because every time you watched it back, you were looking at it and thinking, but he's been shoved into the net. <laughs> yeah. and the net is and how, vacant. And when you and, see how protected keepers have been yeah. just over the years, it, it absolutely baffled me. But then you, you also get a sense of how like the VAR and the is it P P M G O L um, who do the rest. PGMOL, PGMOL, yes. that's the one. How they've tried to tie themselves up in logical knots to justify stuff and clear and obvious errors. And it's like sometimes depending on which whether the ref's given it or not, depends on whether VAR will give it or not. Because if they give it, they might not. You know, I just sort it out. <laughs> you could I think you could argue the the Wilson one either way, couldn't you? If you're yeah. of a full in persuasion, you can say, look, McKenney is trying to push him and he and he is, but he's not pushing him in a way that, you know, requires a, a swan dive. And I felt and maybe I'm biased too, but I felt like that should have stood. And I think if it had been allowed to stand, Leeds would probably have won that tie. And between that and the header from Ruta, which was a, a brilliant attempt at a finish. I mean, at, you know, a few inches out, but absolutely perfect, perfect header back across the keeper, bar for, you know, that tiny fraction that, that took it onto the inside of the post. Best we've seen um, from him so far, do you think? I think so, yeah. Um Certainly against that level of opposition, I thought he had a decent day over at Accrington, but you know, it was Accrington and it was always, the judgment on him was always going to depend on Premier League opposition, which Fulham are, um, rather than League One. But yeah, I would say so. I, I think he still looks very raw and he looks like he's going to take time to feel his way into into the side and, and into, I guess, into, into English football as well. And I'm probably saying what a lot of people are thinking by reflecting the fact that I think they are missing Rodrigo you know I think you'd like to have Rodrigo in this team at the moment in the form that he'd been in and finishing as he'd been finishing but I do feel like there is a skeleton there for Gracia already to work with and I think he'll be quite happy with how it's gone this past week he'd be delighted with the Southampton result obviously but I don't think he'll feel that they play badly at Fulham and I think he'll he'll have that feeling of, of confidence that what he's saying to the players is starting to get through one of the things I took away from the Fulham game, actually, is that we should be encouraged by the fixture down there that's to come in the league. We can get something from that. And I think that's probably the best thing we can cling on to at this moment in time. Well, do you remember what we were saying on Monday about perhaps the the change we're going to see of Leeds actually producing results in the games that you would expect them to or where they're really under pressure to do it, you know, like Southampton last weekend. And perhaps not coming up with these random surprise unexpected performances against away at Liverpool um, when they, they look like they're on the, the knees you know against Chelsea when it, it really wasn't anticipated at all it might be that there's a, a bit more sort of uniformity or a bit more predictability to, to what happens but I totally agree I mean back down to, to Fulham for that fixture on the basis of the FA Cup game I think you'd, you'd have to be optimistic about how it's going to go and you look at the table I think we could get we could get something out of potentially anybody from about fourth or fifth downwards now you know, you might rule out maybe the top few clubs are in form or on a hot streak or whatever it might be. But, you know, from Fulham downwards, we're in seventh, Brighton, Brentford, Chelsea, Villa, Palace. You'd fancy us to be in that game, regardless of which way it went. Like, it felt to me like the Fulham game was one we could have got something out of. But just sometimes you just lose football matches, don't you? 
I, I look at the, the Premier League now as almost a, a field of 13-14 below the top six who really, in any given season, you could position bottom three, you could position on the cusp of Europe, you could put mid-table because none of them are so good, none of them are so consistent that you can confidently say that, you know, perhaps Brighton and Brentford are, are exceptions to this. They've had a couple of good years running now. Brighton look steadier and steadier and, and do feel like they're they're starting to properly properly lay foundations as a, as a Premier League club. But everybody else, results are narrow, results are tight. You can make arguments for them getting sucked into trouble. You can make arguments for them getting out of it in the way that I think people will be feel, feeling more confident about Leeds on the back of the Southampton result and also on the back of Everton getting tonked away at, at Arsenal. So yeah, it's it's true. I, I think that I think points are there for the taking, absolutely. And I, I kind of feel like if this is going to be the model we get with Gracia, that there's a lot of percentage play in there, and I think it I think it could deliver. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. So we haven't gone off to the press conference uh, today, Phil, for recording the show. We are Thursday late morning here. Having a chat about the the weekend game coming up, we'll, we'll preview Chelsea in, in due course. Uh, but we had, we've got the live show tonight that we're yes. doing alongside football cliches. One of the, uh, the the athletics stable mates. Yes, we're very much the warm up. Yeah. Oh yeah, <laughs> the hype men. The hype. Yeah, men. hype men. Um, that's it. That's so it. So just, yeah. just for timing purposes, we've gone I, ahead of the. I encourage call. everyone to leave after we've done that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so uh, we've gone ahead of the press conference just for timing reasons. It actually led me onto a thought about the press conferences. In that he's not giving away much, is he, Gracia and. It feels almost like we could comfortably come in here and just have a chat and not worry too much about the press conferences now because he's not saying much in terms of like injuries he's not saying. I'd rather not say, he's explicitly said. And he seems to be falling far more in the direction of what you expect from press conferences where you can, you were very engaged by Marcelo Bielsa's because he was this fascinating, enigmatic character. There was the whole translation thing. Marsh obviously talked a lot, sometimes possibly to a fault, you might argue. And then Grassi just seems to be default manager. So, so how have you noticed that transition like over the last year? They're quite fascinating things, press conferences, because they do differ massively from coach to coach. And for anyone subscribed to The Athletic, I, w- I would direct you towards a piece that Liam Toomey's done about Chelsea, and it is about Chelsea, but it's predominantly about Graham Potter and about the fact that Potter is coming for criticism amongst other things. I mean, seems to be getting criticised for, for a lot of things down there, but for his demeanour in press conferences, for what he says... Sometimes what he doesn't say, you might have seen the question that was asked of him and, and his kind of spiky response to it about why he isn't more critical of referees and why he doesn't complain more when particularly bad decisions go against Chelsea. And what Liam's done is he's done a, a kind of you know, fairly t- tongue-in-cheek overview of what a Chelsea manager needs to do at a press conference. So based on past 
holders of that job, i.e. Mourinho, who walked in and said, I'm the special one. What should you say? What should you do? What should you not do? What are the pitfalls to avoid? And some of those things, like, for example, Liam said, don't be critical of your predecessor. And um, that was one of the things that Gracia did earlier this week. He was asked, what what have you said to players? And he said, well, the first thing I, I wanted to do was make sure that there was going to be no implied criticism of what had come before. You know, I didn't want to besmirch the work that had been done, you know, by people before me, i.e. Marsh before him and then Bielsa um, going a little bit further back. But at the same time, things needed to change, you know, or things that I wanted to do meant that there, there had to had to be changes. But pitching a press conference is, is really difficult because you do sway from people who will say everything and anything. And I, I always thought with Bielsa that he he was actually quite guarded, even though he would say plenty. It wasn't as if he was reckless in any of what he said. Everything was really seriously considered, never got stuck into referees, very rarely said anything about players individually any more than, than he had to. I always remember after the Everton game at Goodison Park in the first Premier League season, him saying about Matthias Cleek, he was asked about Cleek, and him saying, you know, in my opinion, Cleek could play for any single team in the world. And that always stood out to me because even though Bielsa valued his players and, and you know, was complimentary about them in his own way, he didn't often do that. You know, he didn't often go to extremes in saying this player is sensational. He would talk a lot about their character and their personality and their commitment and so on. But, you know, that was that was quite un, unlike him. Then you get other extremes where you have people who will say anything and answer anything and will get into anything. Then again, you have people like Gracia who are actually even more guarded than somebody like Bielsa. Everybody remembers Bielsa naming his lineup, you know, constantly <laughs> until he got it into his head that other managers might think it was disrespectful that he was he was doing that. And it never was. He was just trying to be open and saying, look, this is who we've picked. You know, a little bit like they do in the Six Nations where they announce the team four to five days before. You know, here's my 11, let's, let's crack on. And his attitude was always that there wasn't any, any great secret to it anyway because you knew what the squad was and you knew roughly what, what he, he was going to do. But without a doubt, it's been a, a gear change from Marsh to, to Gracia and I think we'll see that as time goes on. Do you think that was a misstep by Marsh? I'm specifically thinking about the, uh, the overtrained comments. Whereas, well, you know, even if there's truth in it, does it need to be said? Does it, does it, it comes across as even if it's not intended, perhaps lacking a little grace? I think as a rule, it's probably not a good idea to get sucked into to anything like that, even if you're following on popular managers. So let's, for example, say that Neil Warnock's been sacked and the next manager who comes in is very critical of some of the stuff that's gone on. Does does Michael go, oh, I quite like that? <laughs> um, or, or do you think, actually, no, that's a, that's a bit disrespectful. I think the problem with that is that you start straying into ground where you then have to put your money where your mouth is. And the problem for Marsh after, you know, talking about the overtraining was that, and even though this wasn't particularly fair, any time anybody got injured, <laughs> I would get sent tweets by people saying, oh, that must be the overtraining. Yeah. That must be, be what it is. So You, know, you make you, a rod for your own back. You, you, you do, yeah, you yeah. do. You become a bit, of a bit of a hostage to fortune. But over the years, it's been really interesting seeing the different ways in which different managers handle the press and cope with press conferences. I only ever did one Alex Ferguson press conference pre-match and that was actually, I mean, the games that Leeds had against Manchester United, Ferguson never turned up to the post-match, never never seemed to do them. But it was before the January 3rd FA Cup game over at Old Trafford. And the thing about Ferguson was that he was back-page news all the time. You know, he was the back-page splash for your nationals whenever he said anything, give or take. 
So everybody turned up for that. There was always a big crowd, whereas you would go to Leeds and there might be three or four of us down in League One particularly. You'd go to Carrington and there would be scores and scores of people, you know, it'd be, it'd be totally packed. But there was always this underlying air of this could kick off at any time because it was better to get good lines out of Ferguson. You know, if you could get particularly good lines out of Ferguson. The thing about Ferguson was, it, you know, gave the impression that the press were a nuisance for him and, you know, he, he, and he could do without them. But actually, it was an absolute master at using them, at knowing when he needed to say something or had to say something that could apply a bit of pressure elsewhere or could ease the pressure on, on his own players. People, I mean, I remember when I started at PA, there was an old sports editor there who used to send the Manchester United correspondent questions before every press conference. And you would read the questions and you would think, this is just like, this is like properly poking the bear. You know, Ferguson will kick off with, with some of this. But there was always the temptation to do that because when he got going, you could get some really spectacular stuff out of him. So he was a bit of a ringmaster in that sense. You know, he was controlling the whole thing. But then you would move to other people like Mick McCarthy, who was a bit like your dad in the sense that he kind of, <laughs> He kind of loved you really, um, loved you all really, but he didn't want to make that too obvious. And he also wanted it to be clear that from time to time he thought you were a bit of an idiot and that you were fairly clueless and that, you know, he he was slightly more world-wise, let's put it that way. But it was always good fun. So I remember being down at Ipswich and there was a, a reporter on the scene there for a long time, a guy called Mel Henderson, asked something of McCarthy. And McCarthy just paused and he said to him, is it your turn to ask the stupid question this week, Mel? And, you know, he just used to joust with people all the way through. And obviously there's that even more famous press conference of, you know, or that question of some people would say, Mike, that was two points dropped. McCarthy says some people can fuck off. And, you know, that, <laughs> like, that was, he, he, he didn't really care in that sense, but he, he always spoke really well and he was very honest and, and this, that and the other. But it was more kind of jovial while at the same time you sort of realised that you didn't particularly want to cross this guy if you, if you couldn't. All the way to extremes like Dennis Wise when you really did think that... You and know, I was wondering when we yeah. get to Dennis Wise. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking exactly the same. You, you did think that chairs and tables could start flying at, at any moment. Just to reset on that, it's worth saying that... Is that when you turned up to interview him early on in the job and he'd printed out everything you'd written about him or something like that, was it? We'd, we'd been banned through the summer. I mean, you couldn't sort of be actively banned through the summer because all the friendlies were away from home and, you know, it's not as if you have that many press conferences at that point but we were banned during the administration period you know the so minus the, 15 this is the evening period. post you referred yes, to yes I was at the evening post at the time so from the end of the 06-07 season to the start of the 07-08 um, season we were we were banned and wrote some fairly critical stuff of him and Bates so we were allowed back in for the press conference before the first game away at Tranmere and that was the day when they appealed and appealed and appealed and the minus 15 deduction had been applied and looked like it was going to stand, although they did subsequently fight it through the season and then and then lost. So I went to this press conference. And when I got there, there was this massive stack of printouts on uh, Wise's desk at the front of the room. And it was Evening Post articles, most of which I'd written. And the very top one was about a friendly against Energy Cottbus in Germany, where Leeds had had two players sent off and lost the game and everything else. And that had come right in the thick of the period where nobody knew what was going to happen. You know, Bates was trying to buy the club back. I think at that point he already had. They didn't have players on contracts because they were under a transfer embargo. It was a total mess. And the the headline on this piece at the top was United home in disgrace. <laughs> and I just thought, this is going to be good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just going back to the stupid questions point. Yeah. You must have sat in there at some point and thought, oh, why have you asked that? Oh yeah, constantly. 
constantly. And sometimes what you ask doesn't come out as you mean to ask it or doesn't sound, it doesn't make the point that you were properly trying to make. I mean, I think one of the things that makes a good press conference, it's obviously good questions. And there are quite a lot of us that fall down on that front from time to time. But also the better press conferences tend to have intrigue or jeopardy around them. So when there's pressure on, when things are going wrong, when things are going spectacularly right, you know, that's when it, that's when it tends to tends to be really good, and when you you come out of them thinking, can't believe what we've some of what we've we've heard there, or, or some of what's been said, and and the moments when also when when managers almost kind of resign on spec. I remember um, Thomas Christensen's last one after the defeat to Cardiff. This would be back in two thousand and eighteen, and he's clearly under pressure, and it wasn't going well. And he was asked by somebody, you know, what about your own job? And Rather than doing what managers tend to do, which is saying, look, until somebody tells me otherwise, I'm coach. You know, that is the, the stock phrase that gets used over and over again. Christensen sort of said, well, you know, if this is my last game and I'm gone after this, then I'll be really grateful for the fact that I've been able to manage Leeds. And you kind of stood there and thought... That's it? Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, you know, that that's him. He's not talking himself out of a job here. He's basically saying that he, he's expecting expecting to go there's almost a time saying oh whatever yeah although bless him I don't think I don't think he was of that view at all I think he was sad to sad to be going but was pretty much admitting there and then and you also have the reckless moments I mean do you remember the the FA Cup game where Warnock managed it from home I think it was against Birmingham he was ill and he was at home so it was um, Mick Jones' assistant who's no longer with us sadly but um, he was um, he was on the touchline doing it and he came up to the press conference afterwards and you know, Warnock was obviously very savvy, years and years of experience of dealing with questions and knowing when to say more than he should, knowing when to be, you know, a, a little bit more cautious, trying to, to get the balance right. Mick Jones, I would suggest, didn't have that same experience. So he was asked, first of all, about Sam Byram at the time. It's doing really well. You know, what's likely to happen with his future? And he said something along the lines of, well, I mean, I don't think realistically we can expect to keep a player like that. You know, he's he's really good they're going to be Premier League clubs who are after him in other words he's probably going to be sold so you're thinking right good um, <laughs> and then the next question was about not good that he's going to be sold good that you got that line well you know you're yeah. just thinking this this isn't going too well really is it um, and then a little bit further down the line he was asked about Luciano Becchio who was scoring a lot of goals but he and Warnock didn't see eye to eye and he was, he was gone before the end of the month but at that point you know he was still very much part of the squad and it felt as if Leeds couldn't particularly do without him because nobody else was scoring. So what's going to happen with Luciano Becchio? Well, they're obviously going to be bids for him before the end of the month. So the club's <laughs> going to come in and, and they're going to want to sign him. Yeah, he scores loads of goals. Why wouldn't you want to buy him? And again, you just thought, not sure this is not sure this is going to play particularly well when it you know, heads out. And I can remember the old head of comms there kind of standing, not quite head in hands, <laughs> no! but you could see in this facial expression thinking, it probably isn't the way I'd be going about this if it was uh, if it was down to me. So yeah, it's it's a weird and wonderful mix. Get those scene ticket renewals in, as, well, it, as, it, as it used to be in the base there as well. You know, rather than with Becky just saying oh, he's a massively important player and we really don't want to lose him, yeah, I'll almost certainly be offers for him. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> on the reckless moments, I immediately think of uh, Massimo Cellino, his many, yes. the Hockey Day one. It was the Adam Pearson press conference where he had his beautiful cigarette, wasn't it? Yes, yes. <laughs> The, the thing about the Hockaday one was that Hockaday hardly got a word in before. And I mean, Junior Lewis didn't. He, he said one one sentence. I think he was asked, are you happy to be here? To which the answer was yes, which may or may not have been true. I don't know. And that, that was it. Hockaday was able to say a bit more, but 
said very little until Chilino decided that he'd had enough and left midway through. And yeah, I mean, th- those those were actually unlike anything you'd done before and anything I'll ever Thoroughly do unprofessional. Because you, you absolutely... Tay Spygate is an example, okay? When we went, when, that's that, when the press conference that was called for that, when we were told that it was happening, your initial thought was, what's going to go on here? And because Bielsa hadn't really telegraphed to the club what he was going to do, everybody was a little bit concerned for a short time that he, would, he might resign. Or, or if he didn't resign, that he might say... Listen, if my methods and my way of working aren't welcome here, then I'm happy to leave, you know, and, and kind of lay that on the table. And that, in the end, that absolutely wasn't how it was. So that was unpredictable. But because it was Bielsa, you knew there would be cogent thought behind it and that it would be, it would be thoughtful. It would be, it, he would have given some time to decide on what he was going to say and it wouldn't just be shooting from, from the hip. Whereas Chilino, unlike any other press conferences, I think you'll, this must go on elsewhere but I think certainly in England in major European leagues you know unlike the average press conferences that you see it was so hard to know what was going to come out of them what might be said what would be said that shouldn't have been said what might have future repercussions that you did genuinely turn up thinking this could be absolute drama and we were talking about the dark arts with players in the first one do you ever find yourself engaging with the other journalists to coordinate like pincers movements on these these presses? Because if you get like your three questions or whatever it might be, do you think, well, well I'll, I'll ask him about this, you ask him about that one, and then you go for a third attack? We've, I don't think we've we've ever really had a situation at Leeds where you've had a, a manager who you felt the need to do that. I don't mean never had a manager you felt the need to ask difficult questions of, but not a manager where you almost felt like you needed to coordinate it. I mean, for example, people have told me, and I haven't been in enough Ferguson press conferences to know if this is correct, but people have told me that journalists there would basically take turns week by week at asking the question which Ferguson was likely to go bonkers about. You know, the question that needed to be asked that was most likely to upset him, you know, basically take your turn. Everybody would get, get hit once in a while rather than the same person or the same small handful of people putting themselves in the firing line time and time again. GFH was um, one of those, actually, towards the end when it was all going badly wrong, where you were sat in the press conference, it was really like Brian McDermott who was exposed to all this, but he was the only way of asking this. You know, when once they stopped communicating or making it easy to communicate with GFH, the, the officials at the, at the top of the club, McDermott was who you were seeing. You know, he was who you were seeing week after week. So it did become that kind of onslaught. And there are times where you have to sort of work out, listen, I'm going to ask about this. You can get in about that. Let's try and get as much out as we can, ideally. But yeah, you know, I think at at Leeds, we've actually been pretty lucky over the years that most of the managers have been pretty amenable. And I've kind of understood where you're coming from. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. 
See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Chelsea and Stamford Bridge at the weekend, Phil. If there is a good time to play them, you could argue this might be it because it's not all that harmonious down there. It feels like the fans are on a knife edge. The team, for whatever reason, is not quite quite performing it's a game we could easily lose but it's a game where there's perhaps something to be got something to be gotten from this yeah not very harmonious harmonious is probably fairly generous I mean that that is the sort of gist of the piece we were talking about in part two Liam Toomey's about Graham Potter that you know that that's the level that it's reached now where he is he's getting scrutinised and he's getting targeted over you know by, by supporters over what he's saying in in press conferences, um, which is not unique. I mean, there was a lot of that with with Marsh as well. But I think the way I look at this is that Chelsea's squad is such, and it's not perfect. I mean, there, there's been a lot of discussion about the absence of an out and out nine in that squad. Someone like Romelu Lukaku, for example. Yeah, precisely that. And then uh, uh, there is Obama Yang, who hasn't made the Champions League squad. Thiago Silva is now injured, so he'll be he'll be missing from the defence. They have good enough players and they've invested enough to win this game just because they have good players and they have a you know a, a quality squad without it being absolutely tip-top. But they are not in great shape. The results are not good. The atmosphere down there is not at all good. There's huge pressure on Potter, which is kind of hard not to sympathise with. I, I was one of the people who was quite pleased to see him go into a job like that because I thought he'd earned it at Brighton. I thought he'd done enough to, to get that gig. But... It is so ruthless at that level. You you do have to perform so quickly unless you have an ownership who are willing to persist. And and most ownerships at that level don't really seem minded to do that. And, you know, it's a change from Abramovich at Chelsea, but Abramovich is notorious for culling managers as soon as anything started to, to go wrong. They badly, badly need a result. Potter needs a result. You would think that that would be motivation and it might well be motivation but I think it doesn't change the fact that at the moment you're talking about a side who don't really seem to know exactly what they are and are definitely, definitely not clicking. How close is it you know, to being broken? That's what I guess you're trying to take the temperature of, isn't it? It's a really good question and a great way of putting it and it feels very close. Well, you know, you know, going into the Southampton game at Ellen Road, you felt like if this goes bad, it's primed to turn. Now, as it is, we put in a decent performance, we won the game and I think it's, it's renewed a bit of confidence in everyone. You feel like Chelsea's probably poised in a similar place, but for different reasons, don't you? But also, you you have to ask how far away Potter is from the sack. I mean, he's he's 26 games in. I, I don't think he's up to double figures for wins yet. The ownership down there, Todd Bowley, 
seem very, very supportive of him. Well, I've certainly tried to be or tried to give that impression publicly. But I've seen this before. The problem at a club when it appears like a manager is either in real trouble or on, or on his last legs or is definitely on his way out. And I can't say which at Chelsea because, you know, not close enough to, to, to have insight into that. But it affects what goes on round about you. And it affects, even if they wouldn't like to say it, it can affect the way players play. It can definitely affect morale. It's never a good thing when a dressing room gets it into their head that a change is coming because it almost feels as if you're just killing time in order to get to the point where that change actually happens. So, you know, I think it's probably fair to say that if Potter is going to get a grip of this and is going to get himself out of the hole that he's in at the moment, then it's got to start really soon and it's probably got to start for him on Saturday. So we've now dug out the reasons why Leeds can win. What do we need to do to win? Score a goal, I would say. Well, score a goal would help, yes. Put, put the um, ball in the net when you've got a chance. But more than anything, in a game like this, initially be as tight and defensively organised as they as they were against Southampton and were against Fulham. They do need to score and they do need to take chances, but I think they probably need to think first about the fact that if they're giving Chelsea too much space, too much freedom, whatever else, then Chelsea do have players who will create and Chelsea do have players who will score. You know, they they... They are not a bad group of players down there at all, quite quite the opposite. But I think this is probably one of those fixtures where if you can be neat and tidy and hang in it for a good period of time, then a little bit like Stamford Bridge last season, it might just be there for them. If we frustrate them, if they can't yes. get through us, that, that'll turn the crowd. You'll you'll I think you'll turn it within twenty minutes, I think. Well it's a crowd hour, it's yeah. a crowd who are very ready to be frustrated. Yeah. Absolutely. And a crowd who'll probably go in there on Saturday expecting to be frustrated. And you know how it sometimes gets with football? when you have sections of a crowd who've decided that they want to change, sometimes you have crowds who actually want to be frustrated because they just want that to happen. They want it to go beyond the point of, of no return. Again, it's that, it's that to get nihilistic. We've seen it at Ellen Road, haven't we? Where just tear everything down. You kind of, not, not saying you, you're willing it to go wrong, but you accept it going wrong because it, it enables you to then vocalise the desire for change. Well, I always remember in Warnock's last game the game against Derby um, <laughs> yeah, the, the, you say. do know what I'm going to say don't you the champ <laughs> from the cop of you can't fault their effort it's a, a great set of lads, if, a great if, bunch we, of lads yeah. if we're going for yeah. famous press conference cliches or quotes on, on repeat that was one of them you know he used to say that after, after defeats and I think in all my time that's probably the most sarcastic jibe at a coach as in it's probably time for you to go that I've ever seen you know rather than uh, it's, it's so it was almost creative yeah you know? like that actually, it's kind of cut through all, all your bluster completely in, in one chant hasn't it we, we see you is what it's saying it was I mean you know it wasn't funny for one it, no. he, he was sacked but there was something you know there was kind of gallows humour about that it, it he had was, a couple because he had the it's Tom Lee's fault again chant as well did Warnock yeah yeah I mean that again you know, go back to do's and don'ts in press conferences digging players out is a a real art. I mean, you've you've got to be so skillful at that, doing it at, at the right time. And that was that was one instance where it went badly wrong and, and didn't help. But that that game against Derby, it, that was the message from the crowd. Would would like this to end, please? And um, and Ross McCormack said it too. Uh, yes, yeah. There was there was, there was Ross <laughs> slightly more industrial. Like <laughs> yeah, that was more like <laughs> Glaswegian humour, really, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, but I guess what I'm trying to say is that if you have a section of the crowd at Chelsea who've already decided that they want to see another manager and they want to see Potter gone, then without suggesting that they want to see Chelsea lose on Saturday, it might be that they see 
how that could benefit them in getting their way, if that mm. makes sense. It does make sense. There's been a sort of, clamour's not the right word, or there have been people suggesting that uh, Ruta should start based on his uh, performance at Fulham. Would you start Ruta? Would you go with Bamford? What do you think? I don't know, which I think probably is another way of saying that neither of them is totally firing at the moment. If you were giving me the free choice across the squad, and again, I know I'm sort of, backtracking hastily here because I've spent two years saying I don't really see how he fits or is this you know is this necessarily going to come good at any stage but I'd be going for Rodrigo yeah. you know Rodrigo would be if he was fit would be the player that I'd be putting in there without a second thought I mean you're allowed to change your mind based on the evidence that you see with no, your you, eyes you absolutely are 100% yeah. and I think he would probably say himself that he's been better this season than he has been in the previous two and at this stage you know he's starting to get into the latter stage of his contract. I actually think I'd be quite tempted to extend it if he is playing, you know, carries on playing like this. Part of me thinks that Bamford is probably the savvy choice. Part of me thinks that the sooner Ruta is up to speed and playing at full tilt, the better for Leeds. Can I duck out of this one? I don't really know. I, th- I think I'd probably go Bamford. Yeah, Just flip a coin on the day. It's fine. <laughs> I think that's, yeah. that's what they do, isn't it? <laughs> In the dressing room. Make him yeah. up an arm wrestle or something, I don't know. <laughs> Stick all their names in a tombola. <laughs> Just pull them out. Oh, you can go up front, whatever. I mean, I will, Chelsea's centre-backs are not particularly mobile. So I think, and I think the game of either of them could potentially get something. Because, I mean, Koulibaly was awful at Ellen Road. I suppose mm. substitutions are going to be important as well, aren't they? Pick them at the right time, make them when, when the game demands them. It was funny at Fulham, the the one period where Fulham looked really comfortable and actually looked like they were starting to cruise was after the second goal and, and once there was a, a bit of a change around with, with Gracia's lineup. But I did like the fact that Leeds were able to reassert themselves again and, and even though that tie should really have been dead, I know it was dead but in the end, but you know, should really have been dead with 10 minutes to go. Actually, Fulham were really wobbling towards the end and it was good to see that, you know, that there was a, a, an, the ability to go again and not just in kind of frantic fashion, you know, Leeds were... were very, very close to a goal in those closing stages. So I agree with Michael. It's not a particularly mobile Chelsea defence. They're not rapid in the middle. That might tempt you to play Ruta. Part of me was going to say it's a big ask to launch him in for this game. The other half of me thinks he did cost 30 million quid yeah. um, and he has played in the Bundesliga. So it's not asking that much, is it? Um, no. He, he should, be, should be up to this level. So it's hard to know with that one, but, but I think I probably are on the side of Bamford. Yeah, the question was kind of prompted by seeing what we did against Fulham and see that we, we almost seem to be trying to play more like a counter-attack inside now. Yeah. You wonder if that maybe suits Ruta's game a little bit more, you know, like explosive pace on the turn, dribbling, that sort of thing. I think it does, although Leeds... And, this, all... and that's not me talking Bamford out, I just wonder if that's the thinking. Yeah, know? no, it, it, I can see the logic there. Um, Leeds were actually exceptionally good counter-attack inside on Bielsa's watch. They just didn't do it very much. But when they did, they scored some of the best goals on the counter, some absolute dynamite from back to front. And Bamford was obviously a, a big part of that team. But yeah, if you're looking for pace and you're looking for, I suppose, dynamic running, then Ruta probably offers that more. Do you think we'll see the two up front or a man tucked in playing off Bamford or Ruta or another, whoever it may be? Similar to what we saw against Southampton, or do you think they'd be tempted to go for the more robust midfielder? I get the feeling that that Gracia's preference will be more often than not to have McKenney, Adams and Rocker um, in the midfield. And I think if you do have those three, rather than wanting to play them as a three, I think McKinney in a more advanced position makes more sense. Um, I think out of the three, it's clear that the best passing is going to come from Rocker. You know, he seems like the, the 
the best of the three at, at pulling the strings. And there was quite a bit said about the distribution on um, on Tuesday, the passing of McKinney and, and Adams. I think, particularly with Adams, I never think of him as somebody who is a string puller, particularly. I think of him as somebody who disrupts, sticks a foot in, tries to give you a platform to play off and, and then other players play round about him. McKinney probably falls slightly more in the middle between him and Rocco when it comes to ability on the ball. But McKinney also has, has traditionally been pretty box-to-box and you know can be an attacking asset and I think was an attacking asset on Tuesday night at Fulham. So, yeah, I, I think I'd be surprised if those three aren't in again. I think if they are, then you have to be almost going for a 4-2-3-1 because McKinney isn't going to play up top. He's going to play centrally, most likely, but he's not going to play up top with a Ruta or a Bamford. I think this would be a very bold game in which to go, say, 4-4-2 um, and, and to go with a proper a proper pair of forwards. So I don't think, I don't, because of the way they played, I don't think he'll swerve massively from what he did on Tuesday night. It's a bit weird having three fit, purpose-built central midfielders. <laughs> it's been a very long time, hasn't it? Well, it's a good thing. It gives you the option for rotation and it means that, you know, if one of them drops out, it doesn't become incredibly difficult to replace them. You've got JB in the background as well and I sort of feel like this is exactly the setup you should have for somebody like JB that you have proven players with demonstrated pedigree like Adams and McKinney and, and Rocker but then behind them you have somebody far more raw who is developing as opposed to having you know other midfielders who themselves are already experienced and are just looking for games you know I think it helps somebody like JB to to develop and it helps you to have confidence I think in having somebody like him on the bench so yeah but that, I suppose, comes back to what we've been saying for a lot of the season, which is that I don't look at this and think it's a poor squad. You know, I don't think it's a bad squad. I, I think it's a long way from being ideal when it comes to having steady season after steady season. And the one thing that hasn't happened is that good players have not been built into a good team to this point. But I don't think there's a kind of shortage of quality there at all. Tuesday demonstrated that. It's it's an interesting fixture, this one, isn't it? Trying to call which way it's going to go. I mean, obviously, the optimistic part of my brain always thinks we've got one of these in us. It feels like a draw to me, does this one. I don't know why. And I think that would be a decent point under the circumstances. It would be a decent point, yeah, yeah definitely. But I, I, the perception of the win over Chelsea in August has changed slightly. I think it was a, a really good performance on the day, really dominant. But Chelsea have shown themselves not to be one of the best sides in the division this season. So I guess it just slightly alters what you think about the the standard of that performance and what you think about Chelsea. And looking at them now, you you feel that whereas in years gone by, this would have been one of those kind of almost write-off fixtures that you're not going to get anything from. It doesn't feel so much like that. So point would be great, but I, I wonder if in the dressing room at Leeds, they'll be secretly thinking to themselves, could be a win in this for us. And if it is, that'll be huge. And you wouldn't have necessarily thought that some weeks back, would you? But like you say, it's interesting seeing how their season's just kind of, it's that's that's just drifted, hasn't it? Drift yeah. is the right word. There's a strange disconnect between the Chelsea results and their squad, isn't there? Because you can't help but look at the squad and think we've no chance here because it's a ridiculously strong. It's got huge depth to it. Their bench will probably have several hundred million pounds worth of footballer on it. But then they keep losing. Yeah, there's, there's, there's something <laughs> so, missing. It just goes to show that there is kind of an, an alchemical kind of element to football almost. Yeah, no, there a, is. The secret sauce or whatever it might it's be. It's the proof yeah. that with probably the exception of you know, a tiny handful of players like a Pete Maradona or a peak um, Messi. And I thought you called, called him Pete Maradona then. That's <laughs> <laughs> his name. <laughs> That's his cousin. Yeah, a, a tribute act from Edinburgh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he, he, and, you know, Maradona was in a really good Napoli side, like 
great Napoli side, there's lots of good players in that. And Messi played with loads of world-class players at Barcelona, but they were the sort of players who you could, I guess, build everything around and from time to time say, if they're in the side, then we're going to do really good things. More often than not, top quality players help, but there has to be there has to be a team structure to it. And I'm not suggesting that Potter is just launching players in because that's definitely not what he does. You know, if you'd watched him at Brighton, it was all thought through and it was all tactical. But having loads of really expensive players on the pitch does not a good team make just because they are really expensive. And that's kind of what we're seeing down at Stamford Bridge. And the tightness of that uh, bottom half-ish of the Premier League, if we beat them on Saturday, we're six points behind them. <laughs> Drag them into <laughs> the relegation battle. Yeah, this is it. I mean, what would you give for two two league wins on the bounce, eh? But that makes a huge difference. I mean, go down go down through the table. I've just got the BBC's table up here. And from Brighton down in the last five games, and, and Brighton are eighth, only two sides have won two league games back-to-back. Leicester and Wolves. And Leicester have lost the last two. Wolves have taken one point from the last three. So there is pretty much nothing in the way of consistency, proper positive consistency down there. Which means that if you find it, and we saw this in that run on the Marsh last season when suddenly it was, what, about 11 points from those five games where they were beating Norwich and winning it at Wolves and Watford. It takes the pressure off massively. And obviously the pressure came back on because Burnley suddenly got it together in the, the closing weeks. But that's that's what can happen. Let's hope it does then, eh? Let's hope it does. And I guess actually that is what we're trying to get from Gracia is a sense of consistency of, of performance. Because the confusing thing I think about Marsh was the underlying stats were always trumpeted as being good, but it didn't always translate into performances on the pitch or certainly winning performances anyway. And then we'd go and beat Liverpool or Chelsea or whatever. And you think, okay, well, that's what we're capable of when it works. But when it doesn't work, it looks awful and scrappy. And it's just trying to get a a sense of what you're going to get from week to week. And it feels like the more games we see under Gracia, the better idea we're going to have of what he's trying to do. Yeah, and and also for for Gracia... You know, the initial part of his contract runs to the end of the season and, and it'll be a case of see what happens and, and go from go from there. I don't think Leeds are in any way opposed to the idea that if he does well, he might stay on. And, and actually, I think the temptation not to disrupt everything again if Gracia does do well will definitely be there. It, it would almost almost make sense to persist with it. Gracia himself, he, he, I thought it was quite telling when he said in his first press conference, you know, I, I don't want to be here just because I've got a contract, you know, Basically, I don't want to be here if the club don't want me. I don't want a scenario where, I, you know, I have a longer term deal. The club are saying to me, "Would really rather have somebody else." And you know, the, you then have to to sort that out. But he is clearly an ambitious guy, um, quietly ambitious, and he'll be saying to himself, you know, he'll, he'll be understanding the importance of doing well in this period because if he does, then then I think there'll be a job in in front of him for next season. There's no danger of us predicting this one, is there? We're not going to be predicting what's going to happen here. No, I don't think it would be sensible to predict this because it feels like it could go any which way. You have no idea what's going to going to go off. The home ends will be very interesting. Well worth worth a watch. So yeah, let's not. Well, you and I will revisit it on Monday, Phil. Um, we'll analyse the game that happens over the weekend uh, for the Phil Hay Show. Monday edition, which is sticking around for another couple of weeks just yet. And you can find Phil's stuff, all the re- reaction to the game, coverage, theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod say hi at the Phil Hay show on Twitter as well back on Monday we'll speak to you then the Phil Hay show